All right. Hey, hello, everybody. This is Billy Rainford from Direct Motocross. We've got another episode of the History of Canadian Motocross podcast interview here. Today, we've got someone who I'm sure just about everybody listening to this knows and is another fountain of knowledge on Canadian motocross history with uh, lots of interesting stories that we're obviously going to get to. I've got Chris Lee from Walton Raceway on the phone. Chris, how you doing? Great. Excellent, excellent. Well, are you sitting comfortable? Because uh, comfortably, because uh, it's time to take a walk down memory lane. Oh, good. I, I've got the the recliner kicked back here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, perfect. Well, we got a cup of coffee, and you've had a big breakfast. Because uh, there you be- go. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Chris. Well, like again, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us here. I think these are going to be kind of fun things to do, kind of going back over our Canadian history. I, I think it's an important thing for people. I mean, there are kids, obviously, who don't know some of the stuff that, uh, you know, got us where we are. So it's kind of fun to fill in some of the blanks. So I think you're uh, a great person to do that, obviously, with Walton Raceway and the Transcan history that we're going to get to. But uh, we got to go for some uh, personal history. Let's uh, start off with uh, letting us know a little bit about you, Chris. Uh, I mean, how old are you? Where are you from? And where did you grow up? Um, born in England. Born in uh, England. My parents immigrated when I was five years old. What part of England? And, uh, yeah, we rattled around a variety of places around southern Ontario for a number of years, and we ended up in Walton in 1965. Wow, man. What what part of uh, England were you born in? Uh, Guilford. Where is that? And uh, here's, here's a neat bit of trivia. They, they, uh, my connection with motorcycles started uh, at birth because my parents, it was post-war England, and they the only means of had was a motorcycle so when i was born they got a sidecar oh no uh, way sidecar is your first motorcycle experience yeah they, they didn't get a car until my sister was born two years later oh wow now if you don't mind my asking what year are we talking uh 1951 1951 okay so definitely post-war england now where is guilford what part of the country is that um southeast south oh, okay so close to london yep yeah, my dad uh, was you know was uh, grew up in London, so my mom's from the north. Okay, interesting. Okay, cool. Okay, so you came over, and how the heck does uh, a family from England? Well, I guess my family, my dad's from England too. And we ended up in London. So how did you how did you uh, end up in Walton? Um. Well, my my like I say, my dad's originally uh, was a city boy. He was learning how to farm. So when he came over, it was. Uh, and he sort of worked his way up and the, finally he was able to you know pull together enough money to to look at buying a piece of property and at the time um we were living down around Aylmer and uh land was relatively cheap up here Walton area it's, you know Heron County was sort of way up north and lots of rocks and you know it wasn't considered prime farmland at the time and uh he was able to you know, work uh, work out a deal, buy a chunk of ground up here, which is the land we're on now. Okay. Now, was it a working farm in those days? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, we were uh, dairy farming. Okay. Yeah. We we bought, uh, when Dad bought this, we had a, a, a Jersey herd uh, came along with it. And uh, so we were dairy farmers. Okay. So that's, uh, okay, interesting. I mean, I, again, I think if you look back at the history of motocross, I mean, farm kids and stuff, that's basically where it started. And I feel like that's changed over the past few years. You know what I mean? I think the sport, I mean, we can get to that the way the sport has kind of developed. But uh, that seems to be a very common story with how most people got involved in the sport back, uh, I guess, back in the day, I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I my exposure to uh, motorcycle, well, I had a motorcycle when I was 16 and I, I used to follow road racing. I was just you know, all over that, you know, all, it was only magazines, right? Psycho world and that kind of thing. But I was really an avid follower of road racing and, you know, the international stuff and, uh, Michelle Duff, Mike Duff at the time, you know, I, I, I just, you know, couldn't wait to get to a magazine stand to follow what, what was going on in Europe and road racing. And, uh, so I had this real passion about racing, but I never thought of myself as being able to race. And I, 16 i had a motorcycle um for a street bike and uh uh it was only when i was like in my early 20s and uh i was actually working with a guy who uh came over from holland uh, he was an immigrant and he'd uh 
he knew he'd done a little bit of motocrossing you know, it was kind of a thing the kids did over there with 50 CC motorcycles and they'd have tracks in the bush and that kind of thing. And so he was, he kind of brought it to my attention. I mean, I, I'd been to um, ice races and hill climbs and trials and things in the late sixties and early seventies. So I, or well, not into the seventies, but at any rate, uh, so I, I kind of was excited about competition, but never saw myself doing it. And certainly motocross was only vaguely, you know, it was, it was scrambles at the time. And, uh, um, anyway, that my, my working with Hank, this fellow from Holland, and, uh, we went and bought a couple of Jawas and, and end up running around out in the field, like you say, out in the field here where the track is now, um, you know, just using the hills and things. And, uh, you know, then some other kids, uh, young people, guys around the neighborhood showed up and, and it kind of caught on. And, you know, people started picking up bikes. And uh, um, actually, the, the the first event I, we ever had out here, if you want to call it an event, was actually a, a demo day for Hodakas. Hmm. And um, the Hodaka distributor was up in Lakefield, up by Peterborough, um, Jake Cycle Ranch. And he came down with a couple of, I think he brought three or four Hodakas on a trailer and all the kids in the neighborhood showed up to try out these, uh, motorcycles. And, uh, that really kickstarted the whole dirt bike thing because all of a sudden people were aware we had all this rolling land out there. And, uh, it, I followed up. I, I mean, I, I the the building where the gatehouse is now when you come into the track right i turned it into it turned into a motorcycle shop i got the hodaka dealership hmm. and uh, i sold a bunch of hodakas around the neighborhood and uh yeah that that turned into a club the maitland dirt riders and uh um you know this was kind of the the main track for the the dirt riders and eventually they started organizing races and yeah, so a cow pasture slowly turned into a, a motocross track in the early 70s. Wow, now back when you had that uh, demo day, did you have an organized kind of course? Like, was there a track laid out? I didn't know enough about it at the time. And and uh, uh, what was his name? Jake Caldwell? Anyway, he, he was actually into off-road and enduros and things. So he, he just... And he knew enough about motocross. Anyhow, he was a, an active competing, uh, competing rider himself. He's actually pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he brought his competition machines with him, too. They were all like these super tricked out uh, uh, Hodakas. And, uh, you know, we just laid out a course. And, you know, it was pretty haphazard. It was not motocross. It was just a demo day of uh, off-road motorcycles. And, you know, for most of us at that point, we'd never really seen anybody run a motorcycle off road. Um, so it was all kind of new and exciting, and uh, it was great fun. I remember, still remember that day. Um, you know, everybody went home just totally buzzed at these little bikes, and and they were you, you could afford them. They were, I think, at the time you buy a super a B plus for three hundred bucks or something. Oh wow! And uh, um, you know, and as a dealer, I could stock parts. I mean, too, they were simple. They were easy to work on and you could do, do crazy stuff with them. I mean, I hogged out cylinders with, uh, you know, three, uh, with a half inch drill and a, <laughs> and a burr bit from Canadian tire. And, you know, if you got it wrong, you, you, uh, you could afford another cylinder. You were boring out cylinders by hand. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, just hog, hog changing port timing and. Oh, okay. Uh, deck heights and head, you know, you, you used to sit with a uh, plate of glass and grinding compound and take down a head. Mm. <laughs> and then put it all together and see if it would start. Yeah. And, and the neat part about Hodak is was there was a whole kind of a, a community about it. So I used to subscribe to a newsletter and guys were using them for road racing and drag racing and all kinds of things. So they publish all the stuff they were doing to them, you know, the, the port specs and ah, okay. everything. And, um, so you kind of went out and experimented with your own and, and, uh, you know, we used to cut the frames and drop the engines and extend the swing arms. And, you know, it was, it was, it was a great little piece of equipment. It was, uh, 
crazy what you could do with it. What what size motors are we talking about? Those were hundreds, and uh, they, I mean the the, the uh, wombat came out at the end of the the era. It was a one twenty five, and they had a two fifty. But I never did see a two fifty. But uh, the the hundred cc engine. Uh, was kind of the heart of the Hodaka. It, it it was actually derived from an industrial engine originally, and there was a, a company out in uh, Washington State called Pacific Basin Trading Company started bringing them in and uh, sort of to to spec, you know, to for the North American market. Okay. And and so the the motor was fundamentally really simple and not highly tuned or anything, and but cheap to, to look after and reliable so now, hey now what what were you guys wearing for riding <laughs> uh sweatshirts and like you know that's something the kids take for granted nowadays is, is uh you know graphics and like graphics like yeah. it was a big big deal to put a, a name or a number on a shirt <laughs> um and i remember uh you, you know, so you generally it was hockey shirts or that sort of thing. You still there? Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, it might know my phone doing there, and I'm checking to see if I lost you. No, we're here. Um, so uh, yeah, I uh, it was yeah blue jeans and work boots and t and sweatshirts with uh, you know stencils, uh, you know Hodaka stencils ironed under the front of them. How about your feet? What were you wearing for boots? Work boots. Just a work boots, of course. Yeah, classic. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I got a pair of high points in '71 or '72, and boy, you know, I loved those things. <laughs> All right, with the like forty straps sticking out the sides, like the uh, the big leather straps sticking out, little leather straps. Yeah, and the aluminum plate on the front—that was the key classic. part. Yeah, you had to have that aluminum plate. Oh yeah, that was a classic. Now, now, okay. So you mentioned you had a bike when you were sixteen. What kind of what kind of a student were you? What, let's talk about your schooling. What did you do? Where did you go? Did you even go to school when you were in England, or is that all here? That was all here. So uh, yeah, I went to. Uh, I, I was actually doing pretty darn good in public school. You know, skipped a grade, did all that stuff. But I got to high school. I got pretty uh, um, lost my focus. Is putting it politely. <laughs> um, I went off and did a year of university and uh oh where played bar uh, uh Wilfred Laurier was uh Waterloo Lutheran at the time in Waterloo. Okay. And I played I actually had played football there with uh when Tuffy Knight was coach. Oh wow. Uh, and uh that was probably the most uh, profound experience I had was was playing under a coach like that. And uh, I just did the one year, and I didn't go back. But I I got done with a year of uh, football. I gained, you know, weight trained and trained all winter, and put on, I think I put on twenty five or thirty pounds, and you know my pants didn't fit around the legs anymore, and all that stuff. And but but I came away from it feeling like you know all I had to do is put my my head, mind to something, and I'd be able to do whatever I wanted to do. And that was a product of that experience of being around Tuffy Knight and the and the coaches that he had at the time. It was pretty uh, pretty interesting. I, I it, in terms of academics, I was awful, and I really didn't. I'm embarrassed now in hindsight. But, uh, <laughs> I think it's uh, I think it's but, funny though how the older you get, the more you can actually joke about it. Though back in the day, you probably would have said you were a good. Maybe you know you you'd kind of hide that and say, oh, no, I was at school. Now it's kind of like, no, nah, I was a terrible student. I left. It's just kind of funny when you get older. You can just you can just make fun of yourself. Yeah, I kind of cringe when I look at my grandkids and, you know, try to, 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 to keep them uh, nose to the grindstone on it when I was... Do as I say, not as I do, right? Yeah, yeah but better not, uh, you know, the better... Actually, I, I, there's a picture, a double-page spread in the uh, Wilfred Laurier yearbook of me in the bathroom in the dorm with my motorcycle <laughs> awesome. having a pee, having a pee at the urinal wow do you have that so, photo that's amazing yeah i i do have it i'll uh i'll fire it off to you just for a lark yeah that's oh, that's amazing okay now so you mentioned you're i guess you're a little bit of an older starter in this kind of thing now i also i have to ask a couple of my favorite questions i mean now you've mentioned obviously how you got your start in moto so from all that, like when it's turned into racing somehow, I mean, with that, uh, the track started developing, the Maitland dirt riders and stuff. How, how did you get into racing? 
Well, like I say, I was I was kind of like a, a competitor looking for a place to race all along because I was so. I, I I mean I liked sports and I liked competition, and it turned out that you know motocross just fit me perfectly. And uh, you know once I got on a on a bike and sort of had somebody to race with, that was I was pretty much locked in at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I'm just trying to think. I, I can't even remember what first race would have been because it kind of evolved out of, you know, what we were doing here, which was just kind of a group of guys getting together and banging into each other. And, <laughs> you know, it slowly turned into more of a, a more and more organized. I mean, eventually we ran, the Maitland Dirt Riders ran CMA events out here. And I think that would have been like 72 or 73, somewhere in there. Okay, okay. Now I got uh, I got Holy Holy Golly was just getting started about then too. So I did race down there. Um, I don't, I, I just, you know, now that you said that, I can't even think of where the first one was, but we used to race Pope Town, St. Agatha, and, you know, all those uh, tracks like that. Actually, I got interesting stories about uh, Randy Collins and Holy Golly. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if you realize, but Randy was actually originally a dairy farmer. Yeah, I did. I actually interviewed him uh, last year, I think. Oh, okay. All right. Well, well, when him and Audrey moved up to Varna, they still had the dairy cows, and they were into snow. You know, they were retailing snowmobiles. And uh, when he decided to get out of the dairy, uh, my dad and I actually bought his milk quota from him. Okay. So. That was how I got to know Randy was being down there, uh, you know, having that business exchange while he, uh, he liquidated his dairy operation. We bought up uh, the, the, the milk quota and some other stuff, too, at the time. So uh, when we started doing motocross around here, he was interested in it, although his main focus at the time was on the snowmobiles. He, would, he had a half mile oval there and mm-hmm. was running snowmobile races and retailing. And uh, the first time he decided he was going to put on a motocross race, he called us up and myself and a couple of guys with the mainland dirt riders went down there and Randy laid out a track with baler twine about five feet wide that sort of wound all along that water course that runs on the south side of the shop. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was it wasn't a motocross track. He he'd never even seen one at that point. So we relayed that whole thing out. Uh, to something that was a little closer to, I mean, we, not that we were highly experienced, but we had a, you know, we at least been to some races. So we, we laid it all out and he, he ran some, uh, that was the first races he ran there. And, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so I go a long way back with Randy too. Wow. That's funny. Yeah, it's, I always joke about hearing his voice. I mean, you still hear him on the commercials on the ra- on the, on TV and the radio here in London. And, Man, my 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 heart rate goes up every time I just hear his voice. Just thinking about riders meetings ah. and the pitter patter. Let's get at her. I know that was her Ford, but uh, they both said it. But yeah, I just hear his voice, and it kind of brings back memories. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm I'm the same as you. I, uh, I I wouldn't miss it. You know, if, if if you heard it in another room, you'd know who it was. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's still the same too. That's why I made him say a couple of his catchphrases <laughs> to close out my interview with him when I did it. But uh, that's funny. That uh, I mean, obviously, you guys are Walton and. Varna aren't too far away, really. So, I mean, uh, it's interesting. There's a, a close connection there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, I got to ask you this. My other favorite question, too, is, uh, boy, I, 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 I've seen some ugly numbers, but the 991, is that your, was that your racing number? And how did that all come about? <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, I can't remember. I, I had different numbers at different times. And the, the essence of it was it had to be something that was simple well, I know the the first one I had CMA assigned it. You didn't get a choice. You just did whatever they okay. gave you. And, uh, uh, you know, the ugly part was, again, like you don't appreciate, but now you got stickers and backers and, you know, all this vinyl stuff. Well, at that time, juniors, you know, level riders, you had to be, uh, it was a green number plate with white letters. And uh, so what you do is you'd mask off the number with uh, masking tape and then spray paint green over it. Right. And uh, so, yeah, the numbers look pretty crude. There was kind of something in the rule book about the the, 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 the letter strokes had to be at least one inch or couldn't be more <laughs> than an inch. I don't forget what it was, but 
uh, yeah, it was pretty much freestyle spray can and masking tape. And uh, it was the number they gave you. And I, I think 991 was actually my CMA number, if I remember right. Okay, okay. Yeah, I know uh, a lot of guys up here racing back in those days would have raced District 14 in Michigan. And so, I mean, they obviously gave you gave you numbers. And for so, a lot of guys had the nine the nine numbers, but 991 doesn't make sense because uh, you would have been ahead of me. But uh, I was supposed to be 963, which is a very ugly number. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, now back in those days, so who, you know, back in uh, your involvement in the sport, obviously your heroes were probably uh, more of the road guys, like you mentioned, back in England and stuff like that. But who was your first, uh, did you have a motocross hero back then, or were you guys all just becoming heroes? <laughs> Uh, well, Jan Arik Salquist was uh, was the man. I mean, if you were going to races, uh, uh, you know that was the guy he, for me, anyway. Right. Well, uh, that sounds like Carl Bastido said the same thing. Whenever you talk to him about the, the history and stuff like that, that name always comes up as well. Yeah, he 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 was just an awesome rider to watch, and he was just a you know a, a very mature, calm. He wasn't outgoing, but he was just somebody, he was approachable, certainly. And, uh, yeah, he was a real credit to the sport. But, uh, yeah, he was awesome to watch ride. I always I used to say, you could, if you watch him go by once, you could throw like a quarter down on the track where his wheel print was, and you'd watch the rest of the moto, and he would hit that quarter every lap. Oh, wow, right. Like he, had a, he had a precision to him that uh, nobody else had at the time interesting hitting his marks as they say these days in supercross oh absolutely and then his marks were the right ones you know if you <laughs> figure out where he was going there was usually a pretty good reason why he was where he you know doing what he was doing okay well now now as far as your actual racing goes like uh who were you who were you battling and how far up did you make it uh well i actually started out same time as al jaggard and Al Logue and guys like that. Jake Kimber was just just ahead of me. Um, I don't know if and Al Logue's these guys, but uh, they you know they all went on to pretty stellar careers. But I uh, in seventy, so I started racing in what seventy one and seventy three. I blew out my knee at the end of the year, really bad, and I didn't realize what it was. Mm. I torn a ligament, and the next is all raring to go. And uh, actually, it's, it's funny. We were up at Keene, and uh, I came from way back in the in the. It's not. It was um, oh, what the heck? Senior class is called then, right. but it's inter- intermediate. Intermediate. Yeah. So that was my first year of intermediate. And anyhow, I came all the way from the back. I caught up. Al Al Jaggard was actually leading. And uh, I I think I got a first or second for one moto, and anyhow I'm I'm like catching them and reeling them in and just like feeling them on top of it. And I came up a jump, and my knee just blew completely, mm-hmm. and I was done for the year. And uh, I had a, a couple of I had a Kawasaki uh, 125 Kawasaki at the time from Holly Gully. I did sort of a bit of a side deal with Randy to do schools and things down there, and he. I can't remember exactly. It wasn't a free bike, but it was a good deal anyway. Right. And, uh, yeah. So anyway, here I was all set up, going fast, great bike, and blew my knee, and I'm done for the year. And uh, I got into actually the, the, um, the what's now the Kennedy Fowler Sports Clinic in London when uh, um, Peter Fowler was just getting started. Oh, wow. You know, the the surgeon yeah, well, yeah, no, actually, I've, yeah i've got history he, with him too <laughs> yeah, well peter fowler was actually working out of a little room in a basement at the time and uh he was treating uh todd brooker and a bunch yep. of the the national ski team yeah my and, mom went and visited uh, todd brooker in the hospital uh, pardon my mom actually went up and cold called todd brooker in the hospital there when uh when he was after peter fowler had done his knee one time <laughs> my mom was such oh, a yeah. fan so so anyway, bottom line was I got really good advice and care and what have you, and I ended up uh, I had to take the the balance of the year off. But here another kind of funny story out of that is so I'm I'm laid up walking around with a cast on my leg, 
and uh, Pat Beasley and his family just immigrated. Okay. And they heard about the track. They were living up at Lucknow, and they came in the laneway and uh, introduced themselves. And uh, we ended up struck up a, a friendship. And uh, um, Patrick's bikes were actually on, still on the boat coming over from England. So he he borrowed my bikes and went racing with my bikes and I think somebody else's license. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I think the first three or four races and I, and I couldn't, I, I was so laid up. I couldn't even go watch them, but, uh, I kept getting, you know, people wondering what was the heck was going on. Cause they saw my bike show up. But, uh. <laughs> okay. Well, so, okay. So you're, you made it to senior. Did you ever turn expert back in the day as they called it? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I, I actually in 70, so I had that year off and I kind of came back in 70. I had one of those Yamaha 400s with the with the air bottles on the top of the forks. Okay, and uh, had a mediocre year, but I never never got going on that bike. And then uh, at the end of the year, Patrick uh, uh, loaned me one of his Makos, and I just loved the Mako, and I actually bought it from his '76 from him at the end of the year. But it was Patrick's no great. Patrick's hurt on bikes, and anyway, it was beat, and it just kept breaking the, in the beginning of 77, and my mother-in-law felt sorry for me and helped me finance a 77 Mako 250, and I loved that bike, and I, I started winning races, and I did. I finished third in the Molson Series and senior. Oh, yeah. And I got second, uh, second in 250 and in 400 in the... Uh, in the nationals, they were in, the nationals that year were down at Big Ben. Okay. And yeah, so I got second in both. I almost won. I should have won the open. I I blew it on the last lap. Got stuck behind a guy and and uh, uh, like lost five places on the last lap of the second moto. But otherwise, I would have had a national title in my name at that point. Mm-hmm. So then I then I did two years of expert after that. Okay, so we're talking like that was right when man, the bikes were changing so fast. The whole sport was developing so quickly there in the late seventies. So I mean, you must have seen everything from like all the major changes. That uh, I mean, heck, we're still riding now. Obviously, the big changes, but I mean, one shock that people trying all kinds of different things. Yeah, yeah, it was like even changes from one weekend to the next. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and crazy stuff that would break. You know uh, that guys would move their shocks up and the shocks would overheat and they'd be cooling them between motos. Uh, I remember Coney shocks used to go blue and the shafts would go brittle and they'd snap. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was like, and, uh, you know, guys would try stuff and, and not, it wouldn't work or, you know, it was just, there, there was all kinds of really bizarre things going on. Uh, but, yeah, the bikes, by the late 70s, by 79, like my Makos, I, I rode Makos in 78, 79. Um, I had a, a real good relationship with the Staffords um, when they were the, the Mako guys. And, uh, yeah, they they were pretty good right out of the box. Um, it really didn't do too much. So, you know, there was a few things. You, rear hubs were, were uh used to blow out on them so you put a wheelsmith kit on them and uh you know there was, there was a few little things but nothing major they just they just worked in fact you know we used to look at the states and if you if you uh if you went down and raced expert down there once you went past the first 10 guys almost everybody was on makos at that time ah uh, interesting that's uh, cool. okay so Two years expert. Uh, now, what was what back in the day? I mean, you mentioned Big Ben and stuff, Holly Gully, and and was Walton on the circuit at that point and stuff. But what was your favorite track back then? Uh, I always liked Saint Agatha, and uh, I mean, Coketown was actually like four different tracks over the years, four right. five. Um, the original Coketown track that they ran in the early seventies was was classic uh, GP type of track but but St. Agatha had really nice dirt and and changes of elevation and everything I always enjoyed that so uh, yeah if I had a favorite probably would have been that other than you know a home track but uh, 
Um, All right. Now, hey, now what? Okay, let's get. I mean, obviously, we got to talk about uh, a couple of the major things that came up. At what point did uh, was the wall? I don't know why I never raced at Walton Raceway back in the day. At what point was it on like the CMA back in the day? At what point was it on the circuit all the time? All the way through the 70s. I mean, we ran uh, Molson Series races here. And uh, usually we ran two or three events in the course of the year, like the at least the one big one and then one uh, like usually a junior, senior only type event. Uh, so the last one was in 79. And then I think it was the eight, either uh, 1980 or 81, Andy Bishop rented the track and ran a national here, which was, you asked me for um, Ross Pedersen's stories. Actually, Ross won here in 80 or 81, whichever it was in that national. Uh-huh. That was the first he was here. Okay, I always ask. I always have to ask somebody from uh, from the old days, the old '80s and early '90s racing kind of stuff. I always have to ask for a Ross Peterson story. A lot of kids, you know, you look at guys, you know, winning nowadays. It was like back in the day, there was just no stopping Ross. It's just so I always like to ask uh, older folks, you know, up upper, uh, you know, from back in the day, just for a Ross Peterson story because everybody seems to have one. Yeah, yeah. I actually raced in. Uh, I was in St. Julia at a national in '79, which I think was. Uh, I think was the first national expert race Ross was in um, because he showed up and he just jumped straight from uh, senior and uh, there was a bit of talk about who he was and that he was supposed to be really quick. And yeah, he was, he like disappeared on me. I, I mean, on a good day, I could finish, you know, round 10th in expert, mm-hmm. but that day I, I remember he he was there and Zoli and a bunch of those guys uh, from out west and uh yeah they were I, I I can't remember if I got laughed or not, but uh they were going pretty darn fast even at that. So they just kinda arrived out of the blue, you know, strangers and <laughs> and uh kicked some ass. So <laughs> the cool part about the story is that, you know, that race here in 1980 would have been probably the first year he got titles and uh his last race was here in uh uh what would it have been 93 at the transcan and he won here for that so we kind of bracketed his whole career oh nice at walton raceway <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, now, um, obviously the, uh, okay. So you, I don't, again, I don't know why I, I never had a gate drop ever back in the eighties kind of thing back when, uh, when I was racing around the area and stuff, but anyway, that's kind of strange, but, um, we have to talk about the whole starting of the Transcan GNC. I mean, I know the story a little bit about going down to Loretta's, but at what point were you looking at that and saying, okay, we need to do more for amateur racing. Was there a, you know, was there a, a moment or how did that all come about? Yeah, it was just just a product of it. We we went down with uh, the Rothmeyers. We all traveled together. We did all the the qualifiers and everything down to Loretta Lynn. So uh, Ewald and I spent a lot of time, you know, between motos at Loretta Lynn, sitting around, going, you know, like we, sh- you know, we should be doing this back in in Canada. And uh, you know, I I did. I think it sprang out of those conversations, that sort of uh, determination that. You know, we had to come up with some sort of way, and um, at the time there was a schism, if you want, between CMA and uh, CMRC, and uh, um, yeah, anyhow, it just it all kind of unfolded uh, afterward. Uh, uh, at the time, you know, the nineties, the late nineties, the uh, motor. I'm sorry, late eighties. It's awful when you're old enough, your decades get mixed up. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, late 80s, motocross was in pretty tough shape in, in Canada. And Ontario was like really poorly attended. The organization was half-hearted and the tracks sucked for the most part, in my opinion, anyway, compared to the 70s for sure. And uh, so I think it, it was in, 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 you know, Brett and Matt, my my boys and my nephew, Jake, were all you know, riding bikes and involved in the sport, just starting to get involved. And, and it was pretty sad uh, version of what I'd experienced, you know, 15 years before that. 
So uh, it just kind of made me determined to come up with something that would be a, a, a focus for the sport and something, you know, it was a way of giving back. You know, I always felt like I got a tremendous amount that 10 years I raced in the 70s, uh, you know, the people I knew and the experiences I had and the uh, you know, being a better racer made me a better businessman and maybe a better husband. I don't know. <laughs> I was always did a lot of things for me. And I, and I, I, I felt like TransCanada early on was certainly a way of giving back uh, to the sport when it was really kind of limping along in pretty tough shape. Well, how, now how did you, that first year, you mentioned there were some, you know, some things going on between the two sanctioning bodies and things. What year are we talking and how did you sanction it and how did you do qualifiers? Like how did it actually run the first year? Uh, first year we just invited people to come, I think. I don't think we got it. We didn't get into qualifiers or anything because nobody knew what it was. We were just grateful they showed up. <laughs> right. Um. But, uh, you know, like I, 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 there's people that are still around. I mean, the Keiths were there, Jamie raced and John Nelson and uh, um, Bill Van Voot. Um, Bill Wallen was there. Um, the cool part about that, that first race and the thing that really made it, made it a thing as much as anything um, was Bill Burr had some connections and, and, uh, so somehow they ended up bringing in, um, oh gosh, name evades me now, but from uh, Great Britain, it was a GP rider, uh, Craig Pradley, and uh, uh, Ryan Hunt, who was a South African who was living in England doing GPs, and those two guys smoked everybody. What year were we talking? The ninety one. Okay. You, if you look up the. Um, you know, on the on our on the Transcam webpage, you see in the results there, you'll see Craig Prattley and, and Ryan Hunt showing up in there, and that's the year anyway. Okay, so then uh, at that point, you, it was a one-off. So I'm assuming, well, I was going to say locals, but obviously you had some people coming over from Britain and things. But and then how did it kind of evolve into the championship that it is that you know that everybody knows now? Uh, just persistence. I mean, <laughs> the first year it wasn't, you know, wildly well attended, but the people that were there, I always remember we got done. I, I mean, nobody was doing multi-day formats for races. I mean, just, there was none. I mean, nationals, uh, were one day deals. Uh, and the idea of doing two days was unheard of, let alone, you know, the first year we did four motos over four days. Um, and, uh, so the whole format was, was, um, unique and, and we didn't know what, what would happen, but we got to the Sunday night and, and trophy presentation and, you know, typically, you know, motocrosses, everybody starts filtering out of the pits and leaving, uh, you know, before the day's out and they want to grab their trophies and go. Right. And, and I always remember, uh, you know, the house where Brett and Mel live now, we, we did, we had all the the trophies that we had were all sitting on the porch and I had a one ton truck with a flat deck on it. And I put the truck up against the porch to make kind of a stage. And we, we did the trophy presentations and I don't think uh, hardly anybody left. Uh, after four days, they are all sitting on my back lawn there <laughs> uh, beside the, the Honda, where the Honda building is. Yeah. Uh, as the sun went down and I remember it was really, it was kind of the point where we all kind of looked at each other and said, yeah, we're doing something right here when people are this engaged in it. And, and, uh, uh, you know, it was kind of like nobody wanted to go home even after all that racing. And, uh, so that was, that was kind of the encouragement to come back at it. And, and you, you kept tweaking the format and, and, uh, as, as, as the years went along, but, uh, and I mean, it was very much a labor of love for, you know, until 2000, um, you know, in 2000 is when the barn got burnt down. There was a point there where that was a major financial hit and, and you kind of had to decide, are we in or are we out? So we decided we were in and, you know, sort of looked at and realized we weren't really in the motocross business. We were in the uh, sort of a tourism event business and took a, a different approach to it. Right, right. Now, what was it called the first year? What was it, the actual event called? Uh, I think we always, uh, uh, Transcan was from the get-go. 
Okay. All right. And then as it developed, as you said, it, uh, at what point did the sanctioning bodies, CMRC, CMA, get on board and say, okay, let's have this as our actual national championship for amateurs? At what, uh, at what point would you say is when it kind of uh, clicked that way? Well, we had a, a CMC sanction right from the get-go. Right. When, uh, well, when Mark first uh, started up. So uh, Stu Peters and actually Stu Peters' son actually raced here. Uh-oh, this is going to open up a can of worms. We better be careful here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, we can we can keep going by that one. But, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, uh, uh, that, that's how it got got started. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, uh, Ewald Rothmeyer was our track guy. He brought his dozer down, and, uh, you know, he was part of making sure it all uh happened too there's a lot of a lot of good faith out of a lot of people to realize it and keep it going but like i say there was a it it was it was a big gamble to do that first one but once we did it and everybody realized this was kind of a special uh there was something special about it right from the start and it's it's changed but the essence was we needed an event you could kind of hold up and say you know i'm proud to be a motocrosser and this is what it's about type of thing and right. uh you know it, and the sponsors started to realize that you know we had a few people al jaggard at the time had uh, r&m motorsport and uh harvey at weissco and uh yamaha you know some of those guys were right from the get-go supported it and they had the same reaction you know they they saw they realized that it was something a little out of the ordinary and it was worthy of of their continued support and that helped as well right so just eventually people started making the trek from bc and quebec and the maritimes and it just started just evolved yeah um i mean we we actively you know brett and matt were both racing in the early 90s um and they you know they went from 80s and junior all, all the way to expert pro for over over the next 10 years so we were at racetracks a lot and, you know, part of, part of that was just building up that, uh, the connections and, uh, especially Quebec. Uh, we used to race up there, Paramount and, uh, you know, even traveling out west. And I had connections from, you know, the seventies through the CMA. So, um, you just kind of kept pitching it and talking it up and getting people excited about it. There was nobody else trying to do anything like that. So really it was more communicating it. Okay. Now, hey, th- throughout all this, as this was going on, what were you doing for jobs and stuff like that? I mean, I know this is putting on the Transcan has become basically a, you know, a year long thing to get going. What were you doing back then? Yeah. Motocross is always a, a hobby. I was dairy farming in the seventies and then I started a, uh, um, business that evolved into a, manufacturing job shop um, started out on the farm but ended up with a we bought another business and we did build composting plants and uh, manure spreading and sludge spreading and all that sort of thing um, so uh, yeah it, that that went on into the early 2000s and then since then I've been uh, been business consultant and uh, done a variety of things like that I had did a lot of consulting contracts with uh actually the um uh, the uh oh shoot what's it called now motorcycle confederation m m a c what's the organization the now m m i c you know the one any rate i was i i had a i took on a contract with the m m i c back in early 2000s i think and i actually sort of beat all over the country and organized that that put that organization together the first year uh that that was up and running okay interesting so, anyway i did a bunch of stuff a uh, variety of, of, of things after that and and you know the transcan and the tracks slowly took up more and more time as it grew and scaled up right now now at, at what point i mean this is a pretty uh 
important piece of the puzzle, I would say, too, is the fact that you, you kind of alluded to it earlier here, but uh, just when it became more of a tourism type thing, and you actually got some, you know, the government kind of got involved, right, locally and federally kind of thing. How, how did that move? Yeah, uh, that, that like you say, early 2000s, you kind of realize you're actually not in the, you know, it makes a difference in how people perceive what you're doing. Um, if you're just running a motocross race, or are you running an event, or are you a destination? And, uh, you know, that there was an evolution of, uh, you know, in part on our part to realize that's what we were doing. And, and that allowed us to grow spectator attendance and sponsorship and, and, um, yeah. And then you, you, you know, you do get, you're able to access, uh, support programs as a destination, as a tourism attraction at that point too. Okay. Yeah. So it'll help. Now what about, uh, neighbors? I know, I know speaking with Brett over the years, he's mentioned, uh, you guys, don't you guys buy, uh, your neighbors vacations for that, uh, week? <laughs> <laughs> sort of some of them it varies but i mean generally speaking we've tried to make sure we we looked after them in some manner but uh yeah they they i mean you know we we if you go back to the 70s there's kids that were out here the 4-h club was out here flagging and those people are now uh what's that 30 40 50 so those people are in their 60s now um so they kind of grew up with motocross and you know the night, even the nineties for the Transcan that once a once a for a week in August they're going to put up with a lot of traffic on the road and a bit of noise. But I, I, you know we kind of grandfathered in in a way that'd be tough to do nowadays. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so now uh, these days uh, you've slid into retirement. You're kind of living off the grid there at your place. How's that all going? Um. Good. I mean, I, uh, yeah, we're actually not off the grid. We just have a, a really, we have a passive house. So it's real, really low power requirement to run this place. It basically okay. can kind of, uh, you could unplug it, but we haven't, but, uh, no, anyway, no, I, I'm, uh, it's been, it's interesting, you know, having to learn to let go. I mean, we've been letting go now over the last 10 years. So certainly a gradual process and, so in the last four or five years, Brett and Mel have really seized the whole thing and given it its own shape, you know, based on their vision. So, uh, uh, yeah, Judy and I are, you know, we're happy to be support where we can and do what we can. And, uh, uh, yeah, I got other projects. I'm actually really heavily involved in developing a rail trail from Godrich to Guelph. Right, right. So, uh, yeah, it's been eating up uh it's it's kind of a job all of its own and i'm involved in uh regional tourism and a bunch of other things so it's not not kind of um i don't know i probably got to keep practicing this retirement thing to figure it out properly but, <laughs> i think that's how it goes probably huh do you, do you ever get a do you ever throw a leg over a bike no i i i had a series of uh concussions and uh the last one was pretty serious there about eight or nine years, nine years ago now. And, uh, basically the doctor sort of said, well, you know, if you do this one more time, you'll be dribbling porridge on a bib in in an institution. So, um, <laughs> I, anyhow, I, 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 a bit too much sort of competitive juice to get on the bike and just casually ride around. So, you know, because it was always the competition part that appealed to me. Right. Yeah, I, I get that. I mean, I, I, yeah, I just love sort of sticking my elbow in somebody's face in the first corner. So, <laughs> um, that was, that was the part that appealed to me. And that's the part that probably, uh, so, so the answer is not really. I mean, occasionally get on something. I, I mean, I'm bicycling a lot now, but, uh, uh, as far as motorcycles go, not so much. Right. Now, now we never really talked about this. I mean, uh, obviously, the the Transcan missed one year, went through some tough times there. I mean, that was when it was transitioning. You know, Brett and Mel were obviously much more involved at that point. But getting through that tough little period there, I mean, can you talk about that a bit? Uh, how, how did you see that all go? I don't know that there's ever been. It always felt tough. 
<laughs> you know, like it isn't, I never ever, and what has it been 30 years? I never felt like you were ever coasting. You know, it was always, there was always something going on that was a challenge that you were fighting. And maybe, maybe that's the competitive part in me. I always feel like there was something more to be done and something to be overcome. So, um, yeah, there's always ups and downs. Like I said, we had that big fire. We had, you know, initially there's battles trying to keep and satisfy sponsors. And, uh, you know, there was always somebody popping up, uh, in the, I mean, one of the problems that motocross has is there's too many things to do in a way. You know, you get too splintered. Mm. So, um, uh, you, you know, there'd be somebody else throwing up an alternative championship or, uh, uh, anyhow, you know, just always seemed like you were fighting, uh, those battles, uh, continuously. So I, I don't know that there's anything I would point to and say there was a, uh, it's always an evolution and a battle. So, right. But you feel the future looks bright for the for the event and our sport. How do you think? Yeah, I I, mm. I think you got to scale things. You know, I, I mean, you look at it two ways. I mean, one is as a sports sport. Um, you know, motocross is going to be it's going to change dramatically. I mean, decarbonizing our economy is going to have huge impact on our ability to travel and, uh, you know, tech tracks and bikes and all sorts of things. But, you know, people always want some recreation and, and, and so it'll, it'll change, uh, from a business standpoint. Yeah. It's going to, there's challenges there. How do you do any of these things and make them, uh, pay for themselves you know land values go up and liabilities uh increase and uh, anyway it's always a uh, it's always in motion i i mean one of the advantages of, uh, of age is appreciating how vast the differences are between 1970 and 2020 uh, aside from covid or anything else in a in a way i mean covid is unique in that it affects everybody Right. But, um, you know, most of the things you run into are so specific that only a few people are really aware of them all, you know, on an ongoing basis, whether it's membership or insurance or sponsor or, you know, whatever. Right. Hey, speaking of which, I mean, as we're doing this interview, um, the Minios, the 49th annual Minios are going and they have rec they have 5,300 entries or riders at the motocross portion down there in Florida right now. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. <laughs> Holy, yeah, 5,300. Well, even, I mean, TransCan this year was, if, you know, if Americans had been coming in on normal numbers, it would have been, you know, a, 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 not a record, but certainly well up there. Uh, I think people want somewhere to ride. Right. You know, they, they there's a there's an audience, uh, an appetite for motocross out there for sure. Um and, uh, you know, we have the still, despite all our complaints, we have pretty remarkable equipment available at relatively low cost you know, compared to road racing and a lot of other motorized sports. So. Sure. OK. Hey, well, uh, well, Chris, we've got a couple a uh, couple mail in questions here. We're going to go to the mailbag. Sorry. I'm <laughs> uh, a guy, you know, I'm sure, you know, Mike McGill, he uh he actually wanted to know, and it's a good question. Who was the first person to do the natural double? And I honestly don't know. I can remember Leo Wilson and some of those guys doing it back in you know mid seventies. Now, was it completely um, natural at that point? Yeah, like we all we did, did never had a bulldozer in here until nineteen ninety. <laughs> okay, so it, it basically in seventies you ran whatever it was is what you ran on. Um, so no, I, I, I honestly can't sort of point to anybody. I, it was, it was tough to do on the old bikes and you know, between, because it was just the shape was exactly, it was no, it wasn't peaked up or anything. It was just two rounded knolls. <laughs> right. So, uh, you, you know, you didn't, and you didn't have the suspension to get that lift that you get nowadays. So it was basically relied on just kind of, a flat launch <laughs> uh, 
and so only a handful of of the top experts would clear it. You used to do it back in the day. Me, I have never done it. Oh wow! Which is always a source of embarrassment. Now you've made my shame public. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, cu- I'll cut the interview here. I'll do- I'll edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> Now, who was it? Who named it the natural double? I mean, it just kind of makes sense. But did who did someone actually coin it that you can remember? Um, not real. I know. I I don't know where it came from. I, I, you know, again, it's sort of way back. I uh, I remember it being thrown around in the seventies, but I you know where it, where it came from. Uh, I don't know. Oh, so that far back though, in the seventies, even. Oh yeah, no, it was it was a thing then, but not oh cool, not quite as not not to the point where it's got its own website and things like that that it does now. Uh, okay, yeah, not, another thing people I, just kind I, of oops, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say just uh, I just thought of something that you um, you were sort of talking about pivotal things for the transcan. You know, a pivotal experience we Brett and I went over to the motocross the nations. Back in uh, what was the year of nine eleven? Whatever that is, two thousand one. Oh one, okay. It went the year it was in Holland at um, Europe, and uh, uh, it was John Sebastian and uh, uh, Dusty Clapp and and uh, Caroli was just just appearing on the scene. He was a rookie that year. Anyway, we went over there. Brett and I and Brett Daly went to the donations. And I mean, I've been a fan of, of uh, uh, the, the world, you know, that series for years, and I was uh, was annoyed at the way the Americans uh, discounted it. But um, anyway, that was such a, an awesome experience just to see uh, a crowd and sponsors and and just the 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 energy and scale of that event um, was something we brought back with us and you know if, if Loretta Lynn's kicked it off I think the uh the donations really uh inspired it to excel you know to be to, to raise it another level right you saw what it could be I guess right yeah yeah and and it, and it was quite different from U.S. nationals I mean you've got a I think well you've been to some so uh it, it, it's uh, it is like a whole different atmosphere and and uh, so on, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's nothing like it. If you've never been to one, you've uh, I always tell everybody they've got to go and do one, especially in Europe. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, so anyway, just just in, uh, like like I say, that was just something that certainly was in, highly impactful on where the transcan has gone. Okay. Well. All right. Well, one last question, and I guess someone wanted to know too. What, what is the best race you have ever seen? If you could think of something, if anything just popped to your head there. Oh gosh. <laughs> I know. I know. As if, right? Um, I, one of the most remarkable racers I've ever seen out here was uh, Julian Bill, and in part because I, uh, he, he was actually, he was fishing around to get a ride over here in Canada, uh, you know, in the part of the nationals. Right. And, uh, so he sent, uh, off, uh, you know, just contacted the people he knew or found or whatever. And I know, and it just kind of showed up on my, uh, email one time when it's sort of in the middle of the summer. And I, I can't think of the year now. Was it 2005? somewhere in there anyway and it was the year he he'd won the uh fim world championship in uh open class okay it was the last year for that race so here i've got this email shows up my my uh this guy's addressing me and he's the world champion or or closing in on it at that point and i didn't take it too seriously at first and uh it turned out he was serious and uh it ended up uh we couldn't find him a ride and uh, we went and got him a bike and basically he arrived in Canada with a box full of parts and, you know, his forks and his head and one thing or another. And we found him a mechanic and Barry Hetherington actually ran around and back background, you know, and looked after that. Anyway, 
the cool part was he went out and raced the amateur part, like the age group, because he was 30 at the time. And to see a guy get on a bike, go out, and we, we basically were you know watching every lap and sort of tweaking the bike the way he wanted it. And he just kept getting faster and faster all week. Every time he went on the track and he was, he was going so fast through the corners on the berm. <laughs> yeah. He was ripping the rad shrouds off. Um, and, and boiling the oil out of the, you know, the brake fluid. And, and then it was just something to watch, you know, and then he sort of said, Oh, you know, I need you to do this. You know, I need this brake fluid or that, that anyway, he had, he knew what it needed at every point. So he went out and raced three motos and two practices and then did the pro on Sunday. And that was the year of the tornado went through both. Right. And and he and the in the pro moto went from dead last to second. And nobody really realized it because every nobody could tell who was what. And then for the second moto, everybody else had sort of hunkered down. He showed up at the starting line. I think he was one of two people sitting at the starting line when we canceled the second motor. Right. And he was just so, so fast and so professional and so like, like his speed was incredible. Like I've never seen anybody corner on this track like he did. So. Yeah. I remember that we all just stood there, just, uh, you know, jaws dropped watching him through the corners. It was just unbelievable. And you guys running around just trying to get, get stuff that he needed. Yeah, yeah. I try to keep up with, yeah. and he wasn't—he wasn't making crazy blanket demands. These were—it wasn't like he wanted, you know, M and M's with all the blue ones taken out. <laughs> you know, he'd sort of say, "No, I need a, a bigger front disc brake." You know, that I need the bigger disc, or or uh, you know, the grips, or you know, it was little things. And right, and every and every time he hit the track, his lap time went down by a second or two, or three or four or five. And it was just incredible to to sort of watch that process. And I I, I was I if I just wish we'd have had a a, a decent uh, moto or two on Sunday because I he, he clearly would have won the the day. I have to go back and see if I have any video clips from that one. I know I have photos, but uh, I don't know if I was shooting video. But now I know he's uh, then he went on to start out a uh, motocross emoji app. Oh yeah, Julian did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got uh, Moto Emoji or Moto whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah. That's what. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right, Chris. Well, hey, man. I that's uh, that was a good little story to end on. That was quite the year. That one, that uh, that tornado year. But uh, uh, anything else you want to mention? I mean, we're uh, we just crossed the one hour mark, so uh, we should probably wrap it up here. Um, well, hope, well hope... I got more. I have more national titles than Steve Mathis. Yep. <laughs> Oh, is that a thing? Is that the battle? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. He always mentions his national titles, doesn't he? I don't know. Is he, does he have national titles or Winnipeg titles? Oh, I don't know. Does <laughs> he did draw that distinction? Anyway, I won three, four. Actually, I won the plus thirty in in CMA, and then I won three Transcan. So there right. you go. I'm pretty sure you win this battle. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris. Well, hey, I really appreciate your time taking a little, you know, a little trip down memory lane. And I hope people enjoy listening to that. Uh, I mean, if a lot of people know a lot of that story, but some people don't, and hopefully they made it through the whole thing. If nothing else, we helped them uh, cure their insomnia, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're all hunkered down now. So, <laughs> all right, Eddie. I don't know if you. I mean, obviously, we normally ask people if they want to thank anyone. I mean, it'd be a huge list. But do you? Is it? Do you want to thank people now, or is that uh, is that just too big a question? Gosh, I, I mean, I, you know what? I thank my parents for uh, finding this far and having the having the courage to, uh, you know, as, as immigrants to put their life savings into to, to coming here. Because you know, out of that decision, you know, my family has a place, and all of these things that we're talking about had a place to happen. So, uh, and and you know, when I was in my twenties, my dad put up with my uh, idiosyncrasies and. Uh, you know, hmm. that's how we ended up with a track, you know, on a dairy farm. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's it's always amazing stories to find how people get there. And it's so difficult to go do other things when you've been involved in this sport. Uh, I mean, it just it just becomes part of your life. And it's, uh, you know, the two wheel thing just kind of gets in your blood. That's for sure. 
Did you, you the one thing it doesn't have to be part of the, the this conversation, but well, I'm not editing it, so if it's in here, it's in here, Chris. <laughs> you had a picture of me as running junior. Oh no, I think I had results. Oh, it was a result. Oh, that's what it was. Okay, I was going to tell you that story because I uh, in eighty, so I quit in seventy nine and sold everything, which. I regretted afterward, but I mean, my tools, my gear, everything. When I was done motocross in 79, I was like totally done. Right. Uh, because I was really focused on my business. And yeah, it was just like, I was so into it when I was in it that, that there was no halfway. There was no casual version of it. Right. I was just, so anyway, I went for three years and then I, I, I got the itch again and I bought an XR 350 Honda, which is, you know, kind of a off-road bike. Um, uh, and, uh, and I was riding that for a few years and the kids were just at the age where they were doing a bit of trail riding. We had some old beaters around for them. So I was kind of something I could do with them. And, uh, but I, it's, I, I sort of looked, the kids were starting to get interested in going to some races and I'd rather race than watch. So I was sort of thinking, well, I show up, maybe I'd try some racing again, but the CMA rule was you had to be. Once you had an expert license, you were always an expert. Right. And uh, I, here I'm with an XR350, which <laughs> clearly I'm not going to go out and race. Uh, anyhow, I can't remember how I did it, but I managed to sort of sign up for CMA as a new rider. I, and uh, <laughs> so they made me junior. So I, I raced park, and I think at one of the races Randy ran at the um, – london fairgrounds and that's probably where you saw that result oh maybe uh, it is i can't remember i'll have to go look <laughs> so that was on that xr 350 so even if i was racing junior i had a <laughs> a, a four stroke when four strokes weren't a thing and it had a headlight and the whole deal oh okay all right so yeah i know because i remember you know that's why i had to ask you how far you made in the sport because i know the last thing i saw was you in a junior class <laughs> <laughs> well, well that was post-expert career so <laughs> all right chris well how about we wrap it up there that's uh, I, again i really appreciate your time it's always fun and hopefully you enjoyed uh hopefully you enjoyed going down memory lane there as well and uh, it's, uh hopefully people had some enjoyment listening to that some always some good stories but uh yeah i guess um man all the best in the in the future there hope everything's going well up there and how about we go out on that yep and in terms of thanking people i thank you for all you're doing and the persistence and you know talking up the sport and connecting things like what you're doing here no oh, i appreciate that i i just can't think of anything else to do that's all <laughs> unlike well, you time. i don't have another business i'm running <laughs> <laughs> all right because no i appreciate it thank you for saying that but uh all right let's wrap it up there and uh man again appreciate your time and uh we will be talking to you very soon somewhere i'm sure See you in Walton in August. Okay, you betcha. Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.